0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we're going to be talking about democracy and the online environment, which I think is a very timely topic, especially since our last elections here in the States, and we've got new ones coming up this year, later this year, so hopefully we'll see with everything going on. But I'm very happy to have Dr. David Karp online, and he is joining us from D.C., and he's an associate professor professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. He's also the author of two amazing books, The Move-On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of American Political Advocacy, and Analytic Activism, Digital Listening, and New Political Strategy. So, first of all, Dr. Karp, thank you so much for joining us on the Loopcast in these very strange and unprecedented times.
1: I'm just happy to talk to other human beings. Thanks for having me.
0: Right. We're, we're being great because we're doing this virtually, so we're socially distancing and isolating ourselves, but still communicating, which is one of the positive things we have with technology. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your afternoon with us. So why don't we start off with defining what digital political influence is?
1: Sure. And I, I tell my students at the beginning of every semester that the answer to every question that I'm going to ask them is, it's complicated. So that's the short answer. But if they put that on an exam, I'm going to fail them because I've heard that joke once. But the 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 answer is, of course, it's complicated. I when I when I teach this stuff and I write about this stuff, I like to lean on Robert Dahl's old definition of power from 1965, where he said that power is relational and it is contextual and it is resource based. So influence in the digital space, just like influence offline depends on who it is that you're trying to influence and what it is that you're trying to get them to do. That matters a lot because there's cases in which, for instance, a Twitter mob can be tremendously influential and cases where a bunch of people yelling on Twitter won't matter at all. And it's really going to depend on who is the target and how are you trying to move them. So
0: going back to 2020, and we've got Mm -hmm. elections coming up later this year, Why don't you draw for us the contours of this ecosystem and political influence within the ecosystem? What is the interplay between social media and then also traditional media? So more like news networks, newspapers, etc.
1: I've been thinking a lot about this in the past few weeks, particularly in the context of Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden's changing fortunes. I think there's a, a big lesson to be learned, or at least a lot of thinking to be done there. Because Bernie Sanders ran, by any measure, a better campaign than Joe Biden and was leading. Bernie Sanders had more digital political influence. He had a larger grassroots base. He had more donors. He had a larger campaign organization. But most of the candidates had a, a larger campaign organization than Joe Biden. And what Joe Biden had was uh, reputation as the former vice president, which led – to a bunch of endorsements, which in particular led to a bunch of mainstream media coverage at exactly the right, right moment. And it, it seems that it turned out that that's all we needed. And I think that is an indicator of the resilient power of mainstream media as an agenda setter, the agenda setting power of mainstream media this is still probably undervalued. But what we often see, though not in the presidential case and lots of other cases, is situations in which social media is helping to set that mainstream media agenda. So a classic example from a bunch of years ago, when the protests in Ferguson, Missouri came up after Michael Brown's, death, well, after Michael Brown's murder, uh, part of what's galvanizing that is all of the mainstream media coverage, all of the cameras and, and reporters on the ground. But how do the reporters on the ground get there? It's through trending hashtags on Twitter, that I think are vital for setting the agenda, for them being able to explain to their editors, hey, I know you've never heard of this place, Ferguson, Missouri, but there's a story going on there and you need to send me. And if not for the trending hashtags on social media, you don't get the reporters into Ferguson covering that event. And without the reporters covering that event, that's then just yet another case in which a cop shot shot an unarmed black man, which unfortunately happens far too commonly in the united states what makes ferguson special what makes it a moment is the protest act action that's happening on the ground coupled with this media attention this media coverage which is influenced through social media so you get a back and forth it's what andrew chadwick calls the hybrid media system in which it's not that social media has replaced mainstream media mainstream media is still incredibly powerful particularly as the media system itself has gotten more and more fractured we now have digital publics plural that are engaging in their own online conversations. That I think then raises the the importance as an agenda setter of the mainstream media, because that's the one thing that focuses all of our national and even international attention and has us talking about the same thing. And in a lot of cases, that's where the the power comes from is the ability to set the agenda. Would
0: you say? Actually, that... let me
1: tell. Can I tell a related story to that?
0: That would be great. I yes. together,
1: a, a bre- so uh, this is a good opportunity for me to make a breathless comment because. I assume your listeners want to hear me talk about Brett bug. Why wouldn't they? So in, for listeners who aren't particularly on Twitter, they won't know what I just referenced. I got into a, a weird Twitter fight with New York Times columnist Brett Stevens in late August. What had happened was there was a, a headline about bedbugs in the New York Times newsroom. Everybody was riffing, making jokes about that. And the best one I could come up with, how like on the spot, was that the bedbugs are a metaphor, the bedbugs are Brett Stevens. I didn't use his Twitter follow- handle. He doesn't follow me. At the time, I didn't have a lot of Twitter followers. It wasn't my best joke. It got zero retweets and nine likes. And Jeff Stevens found that later on that night, emailed me and the provost of my university saying that I had set a new low for civic discourse on the Internet and invited me to his house to meet his wife and family and then call him a bed bug to his face. I shared that interaction on Twitter and it led to about a, a week of the entire internet making fun of Brett Stevens and ended with him writing a New York Times column where he said that the, while the Nazis had radio, today we have Twitter and liberal professors on or liberals on Twitter being mean to moderate conservatives are just like the Nazis of old, which is taking a little too far. But so that, that happened, and that's become known as like the, the Brett Bug jam, the guy who made the Brett Stevens joke. And the reason I mention that, the thing that I find fascinating – about that interaction is that has made me Twitter famous, not even internet famous, but but Twitter famous. Um, And the limitations of being Twitter famous are people either really know that story or really don't. And then when they hear it say like, okay, so what? And that's because there is an online public that is spending their time and their attention in, in Twitter conversations and pretty much the entire online public, thought he was being ridiculous and made fun of him. But if you weren't part of that public, you just didn't hear about it. And then after the fact, like that that doesn't like it becomes an agenda setter for the people who are on Twitter and not for anyone else. When there's massive mainstream media coverage, that's when the online public and the rest of us all pay attention together. And again, going back to the question of influence, the online Twitter public is very good at like shaming people. It's very good at getting corporations who are, you know, have a, who are worried about getting shamed, it's very good at getting them to then feel risk averse and maybe even cancel a contract. There can be real power there, as we learned through things like Gamergate. But it's, the limitation of that influence is, like, Brett Stevens, while he got made fun of a lot, like, his material life didn't change at all. He still writes the same pad columns. He still goes on the same television shows he did before. So it, it isn't like a, a strong, hard power It's just the ability to generate conversation and in so doing, move what people are thinking about.
0: Considering this story and also agenda setting and so forth, would you say that this, what I'm going to call influence, would you say it's real or is it only real in the context of the platform that the messages are being disseminated on?
1: Oh, it's real. It's real but constrained, just like... Every type of power is real but constrained. When I'm teaching Robert Dahl to my students, one of the examples that I like to give is an example that <laughs> worked a little better in the Obama years. But you know, in the Obama years, I would you know ask them like, "Who's the most powerful person in the country?" And they would say, you know, "Barack Obama, the president, is the most powerful person in the country." And I would say, "Okay, who is the most powerful person in if what they're trying to do is get me to change my diet?" And the president of the United States is not particularly effective at getting me to change my diet. My wife would be very effective at getting me to change my diet. Like she has strong power in that particular sense. However, like Barack Obama can change how much taxes I pay, like she and I can't. So that's, I think an indicator of all power being contextual in that same sense. Yeah. Online conversation is, is real. We're seeing that particularly in the past few years, where so much of online conversation can spill up, spill over into, you know, the quote-unquote real world. We we you know with Gamergate, like the online harassment, also cost Gawker.com probably seven figures in advertising because they not only harassed Gawker reporters but they also contacted advertisers and got those advertisers to to drop their advertising. That's a real world effect. You know the. Online uh, right-wing extremists, the white na- white nationalists who are congregating in online spaces, then I'll congregate in Charlottesville and kill a woman. So all of that is real. The harassment that, that we experience is, is real. The places where it ends up being more or less powerful, powerful, though, again, depend on who is being targeted and what the context is.
0: And how important is the messenger in, let's say, more the online world versus traditional media where you have newscasters, etc., like figures that are well known commentators. But in the online world we have everybody can be a commentator, everyone can create content. So how does the messenger play into democracy, the online environment and political activism?
1: So the the big distinction I would make there is while everyone can now like speech is now cheap on the internet, but attention is still rare. And depending on the context, attention is also where the money is because the economics of the entire internet are based around advertising. The whole riff on that I could give you, but it's, it's from a different project. It's not my activism project. So we, there's, a, I'd say, a couple dynamics there. One is, while anyone can speak online, the ability to aggregate a large audience is still hard. And that ability, while it's been small de democratized, bit, you then get a political structure that is helping to deter- determine how, it, how it's going to go. And One of the big controversies that we had spoken a, a year or two ago we have been talking about would have been this question of whether or not the alt-right ought to get kicked off of platforms like Twitter and Facebook. You know, Should Alex Jones get banned from those platforms? And there's a big debate about it. I, I was on the side of saying, yes. I think <laughs> that has largely been proven right. But w- what's going on there is like Alex Jones developing a large following that is with him on his uh, radio show and then with him on uh, like digital platforms as well, that allows him to monetize his show, but it also gives him more and more power because he can bring that audience with him. A, a random person tweeting, well, you never know what's going to go viral as I found with the Brett Stevens thing. A random person tweeting doesn't start with that Influence and in the older media environment, you had a limited number of people who were who, who had the microphone, who could speak. You know the notion of the old saying about not fighting with newspaper anybody newspapers because you don't want to fight with somebody who buys inside the barrel. You had you had a, a tight limitation on who had public voice, and then that that sort of rationalized things where well they are the media, so you act one way with them, and you can act different ways with everybody else. Now, more and more people have media tools, but in terms of wielding influence and and engaging in political activism, the ability to aggregate a large following, the ability to build a community that can then do substantial things together is still real hard work.
0: On that point, when does an audience become a constituency or vice versa when it comes to political activism, and so forth.
1: Tell me a little more what you have in mind with that question.
0: In the sense of how do these movements translate into a popularity, like a political popularity, so from maybe an idea into action versus
1: non-action? So I think the, the critical concept there is probably reputation. I would say an audience becomes a constituency or like, to the extent that they do things together and build a reputation for doing things together, that is when they start to wield political power because other actors believe that they have the capacity to do things. So as an example of that capacity concept, the NRA is a, classical, a classic example. The NRA is credited with, with helping Republicans win a bunch of House seats in the 1990s. Political scientists have looked at at that, kind of question, whether the NRA really had that much power. But whether they actually had that power or not, they are believed to have that power. And that has then influenced behavior amongst political actors who all think that the NRA is powerful, and therefore they behave as though the NRA is powerful. It's difficult to find – or for a long time it's been difficult to find Democrats who are willing to cross the NRA – out of this belief that if you're doing that you're taking your electoral life into your own hands and that belief is where a lot of the power comes from so it's that that reputation building that they're able to do through multiple cycles in that same sense when you go from having a dispersed internet community that are all maybe paying attention to the same thing maybe tweeting around the same hashtags but nobody is really paying attention to it or believes that they're powerful once your targets, once the target actors that you care about come to believe that you're powerful, that's when in a real way you, you have power. And so doing things together ends up being what, what matters to that. The, the, showing your capacity to do something big and something that political actors believe are either very good for them or very bad for them then gives you that power because it is vested in the belief amongst your targets that you have power.
0: How do different social media platforms, say Twitter, Facebook, etc., how does the actual construction of the platforms potentially help audiences or help individuals find audiences and then convert them into their constituencies?
1: In a lot of different ways. In a lot of different ways that actually change over time. So let me tell a story from my book, Analytic Activism. This is in Chapter 4 for those who want to read along at home. Chapter 4 is... Uh, about the website Upworthy.com, which back in roughly 2013 was effectively, essentially breaking the internet. Pretty much every link that you saw on your Facebook newsfeed was an Upworthy link, or not long after that, it was some other website that was copying Upworthy. They came up, they're the ones who figured out the value of the curiosity gap headline, the, you know, like, a thing happened, you won't believe what happens next. And they were critiqued as being clickbait, though I I point out in the the book that it's more like sharebait, because the reason why they were so effective is that they were finding high-quality content and then attaching a headline to it and a share photo to it that got you to click to begin with, but then because it was interesting, you then shared it, and that was leading, in an activism sense, it was a really fascinating moment, because what we were finding is that topics like stop and frisk that we know are deeply important, but our understanding is that the only people who really pay attention to stop and frisk are people who really care about criminal justice reform, who really care about cops harassing black kids in New York. It, you know, It's one of those important substantive issues that never finds an audience. And the Nation magazine had produced this wonderful video about stop and frisk, and not a lot of people were looking at it because not a lot of people look at that sort of thing. And Upworthy found the right headline for it, and it spread to hundreds of thousands and millions of people who – click on the link, watch it, share it, and that then leads it to spread two or three jumps through the network beyond the usual audience. So that's this really powerful moment where essentially Upworthy had figured out that we had moved from a digital environment of search engine optimization and a digital environment in which we found our news through Google, and we had entered, this is roughly in 2013, we had entered a digital environment in which people were finding their news and information through social sharing, through Facebook especially, but a little bit of Twitter. And that meant that you want to optimize for different headlines, and that's where I'm going to lead advocacy and advocacy messages to spread so much further. And that ends up being really powerful for them for a while, it's leading to this massive, massive traffic, like 20, 40, I think one month, 80 million unique people visiting Upworthy content. And then Facebook looks at all of that activity and says, that's some nice traffic you've got there. We'd like it, please. And Facebook comes out with their own product, Facebook video, and Facebook adjusts its algorithm so that video content that is being shared on Facebook rather than Upworthy's, which is being shared by a Facebook but takes you out of Facebook, that, that Facebook video content will do much better and they algorithmically penalize stuff like Upworthy content. And Upworthy goes from 80 million unique viewers per month to 20 million unique viewers per month, which is still a lot, but that, that killed their growth. So part of what we find there is the first lesson is in this particular moment, this, the digital environment that we have circa 2020, which is different from the digital environment of 10, 20, 30 years ago. But in this digital environment, you live by the platforms. Like the way to find a digital audience is to figure out what are the tricks and tools that are going to work right now on Facebook or on Twitter or on Google. And also, if you, since we are living by the platform, you also die by the platform. If you do a really good job of building audience on Facebook, Facebook may then destroy your entire model because they may just change their own rules to penalize you.
0: What does that say for, once again, going back to this idea of spreading news, spreading information and almost this real unreal messenger because Facebook is a corporation. So what does that say for the narrative and also spreading political and democratic norms because it it is a corporation or it's a platform versus the government or a politician? So what does that say for the the ecosystem of news today and making something popular as opposed to it maybe actually being something important or not being important, but the messenger is shaping it.
1: I see. Um, so I, I think 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of us who study this stuff had pretty strong hopes that the democratization of media was going to be small d democratically good, that more people would be able to speak online, more people would be engaging in, like, civic practices and from activism to just, like, like being nice to your neighbors. You know, we, we had this belief, this is like the Web 2.0 era, so in particular, like, 2004 to probably 2009, really. We, there, there, was, there were an awful lot of us, myself included, who thought, you know, the barriers to participation had come down That can only be a good thing. And, of course, what we've learned since then is it's complicated. There are some good elements to it, and there are a lot of bad elements to it. I think it's dangerous to lionize the old media environment because it had a lot of flaws. In the old media environment, a small number of people got to have political voice. Pretty much all of those people happened to be white males who agreed to a set of – norms and behaviors and priorities that reinforced a power structure that was deeply unjust for a lot of people. And I'm glad that those elements of that media environment are gone. I'm glad that more people can find voice. And also what we're finding is that when more people can find voice that doesn't actually solve everything, a bunch of other problems crop up. And some of that is because like, while we can use it for good civic behavior, one of the things that we learned late in the Web 2.0 era is that just because you lowered the boundaries to participation doesn't mean that that many more people participate because one of the barriers were, was that most people didn't really want to participate in politics. People instead were like participating on Wikipedia and talking about a lot of sports online and sometimes really harassing people, but they weren't necessarily going and engaging in politics, certainly not in the ways that we had hoped in our high-minded ideals they would. I think one of the things that we've been learning over the past few years is that the the democratic norms that get taught in schools and get like held up as ideals by like the David Brooks's and Tom Friedman's of the world aren't deeply held deeply held norms for most people. It's not that most people necessarily challenge them, but most people just aren't thinking about them or caring about them that much. So when you give people the opportunity to engage in a like a digital town hall or civic meeting, what you most are going to find out find is that almost nobody's going to show up. And if people do start to show up and using it and and use it to collaborate in serious activist ways, then the power structure will reassert itself and try to stop them. And that's kind of the lesson that I think researchers started to learn in the the mid-teens and certainly really learned in 2016, 2017. Basically going from Gamergate up until Trump's election taught us a bunch of lessons about what people would and wouldn't do online. And particularly since Trump's election, we've had a series of lessons about the ways that platforms can get weaponized for actively anti-Civic behavior. Again, one of the things that stands out for me from the Brett Bug incident, I somehow didn't get a single death threat, despite the entire Internet focusing on me for an entire week. And some of that is because Brett Stevens never Trump, and so the the usual suspects who would come after liberal profs didn't like Brett Stevens either, so they didn't go after they, they didn't go after me because they were just laughing along with the rest of us. I mean, I think Breitbart and the Daily Caller wrote stories about the whole thing and were on my side. I'm like, Daily Caller shouldn't be on my side. They should see the stuff I say about them. But the like that was one element of it. Uh, element of it, but another is like being a tenured white guy is just really great. Like that, that the layers of privilege that get introduced there shield me from an awful lot of civic behavior or uh, sorry a lot of a lot of online behavior that pretty much every woman on twitter has to deal with like, every woman on twitter is getting harassment she's getting death threats and rape threats particularly if she ever actually speaks about even mildly politicized content and that weaponization of these corporate media that despite being corporate also like are the platforms. Again, we we live and die by the platform these days. The way that that has been weaponized for trolling and harassment and for trying to silence voice has, I think, been one of the big lessons that researchers have been slowly and and unfortunately learning for the past few years.
0: And from that last point, I want to sort of transition more into the silencing of voices and also foreign interference, because that's been a huge topic since our last election, and we've got this next one coming up, and one of our listeners actually had a question on that that we really thought was fantastic and we wanted to ask you, and that's, what is the actual degree of effort going into foreign influence in U.S. elections, and how effective do you, in your opinion, think that is?
1: So I've I've written a bit on this, in particular, there's a piece that I wrote for Social Science Research Council Called on disinformation and democratic myths. So again, if people want to read along at home, it's a good piece. I'm proud of that piece of writing. Again, the answer is it's complicated. Let me chart. I think three different dynamics as an answer to the question. The first, I want to make a distinction between direct impact and indirect impact. The direct impact of four, and by direct impact, I mean like Russians buying Facebook ads in rubles, which you know was ridiculous but happened. And because of exposure to those Facebook ads, people casting a ballot that they otherwise would not have cast. My impression, and I think I think I'm, I can summarize the research literature pretty well here, that like almost nobody who studies this stuff thinks that there's a big direct impact there. It would challenge pretty much everything we know about political advertising in elections if those foreign political ads were much more effective than all of the other advertisements that are getting spent that are getting bought in a multi-billion dollar presidential election. And what we know about advertising in general is that the effect size on ads, whether they're digital or whether they're on television is marginal and short-lived. So direct impact, really, really small. Is it a, is it nonetheless large enough to swing the election and maybe because it's such a close election, but at some point we have to ask ourselves, like, you know, all the things that could make up a few thousand vote difference, like which ones do we think are most important, most powerful? The direct impact of, of digital advertisements from Russians really small. In the same way, I'd say the direct impact of Cambridge Analytica's microtargeting probably really small. The then there's the indirect impact, which is mostly an agenda-setting effect. The way that All of that online content and the stories about that that online content and the stories since then about the power of not just foreign interference, but Trump's micro-targeting engine, that, I think, has had an impact by swaying what the media talks about, swaying the political agenda, which damages democratic norms amongst elite actors. I'll come back to that again in a sec. So the, the second dynamic I want to put in there, then, is the difference between direct disinformation effects and media manipulation effects. So again, if, if we buy my, my previous assertion that the agenda-setting effect of mainstream media is still very powerful, then one thing we need to think about is not the ads that are bought through Facebook, but another part of the foreign influence operation, which was the hacking of the DNC, the hacking of John Podesta's email, and releasing those two things at moments when they would do maximum damage within the media system. So I would say that, like, the Podesta email, I don't think it directly led – I don't think there are a lot of people who cast a ballot they wouldn't otherwise have cast because of the Podesta email dump. But certainly that has a dramatic impact on the course of the campaign. Um, Those emails get released just after the Access Hollywood tape had come out. Donald Trump was flailing and making more and more uh, mistakes and Republican politicians were distancing themselves from him. Without that email Podesta email dump, Donald Trump probably continues to melt down on the campaign trail. He's not actually a particularly disciplined campaigner. And more and more of the Republican Party elites, more, more and more elected officials and Fox News uh, contributors distance themselves because they see this as the end. And they're able to change the discourse, they're able to change the media agenda, through that insertion of, of of dropping those hacked emails and all the media coverage that came with it in that same sense though this is not a foreign influence operation I remain convinced that James Comey releasing that letter what less than two weeks before the election warning that he was reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails I mean Nate silver did an analysis arguing that that mattered for several percentage points in the outcome of the election, which is easily big enough to change the outcome of the election. That Comey letter, I think, is the biggest impact that we have in the 2016 cycle, and it rarely gets talked about because that impact is wrapped up in the power of the New York Times itself and the rest of the mainstream media in determining what people think about and therefore determining political outcomes. And that makes reporters uncomfortable, so they don't talk about it very much. So we find ourselves instead talking about foreign influence operations and disinformation on on Twitter and Facebook, which, yes, it's happening, but is it directly that impactful? Probably not. And what we're not talking about is the media manipulation power of things like the Modesta email dump, things like the Comey letter, which I think are are the areas of greater concern of 2020. it, It looks very, very likely that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee for the Democrats. We already know that Russia has hacked Burisma. So, what I I can tell you now, I, I like what I can predict now is uh, with like near certainty, is that we will have a barometric email dump, some of which will be real email, some of which will probably be faked, and we don't know what is what. At the moment that will do maximum damage, they think to Joe Biden, and that is going to be powerful in direct proportion to how much the mainstream media decides they must cover that, like you know A1 New York Times, you know like lead block and all the newscasts. And that's not just going to be conservative media echoing that. That's going to be the rest of the media too because they're going to be suckers who pretend that they don't have power and influence here since it makes them uncomfortable. And then they're just going to go ahead and chase that even though they know that they shouldn't chase it. Um, That, I expect, is going to have a much bigger impact on the outcome of the election, win or lose, than foreign actors or domestic actors purchasing Facebook ads or otherwise trying to spread disinformation to directly impact what people talk and think about. How do U.S. information ops
0: abroad stack up to what we're seeing from our foreign friends, so to speak, in air quotes?
1: So that, that's around the limits of my expertise. I mostly study domestic campaigns, and I mostly study reformist activism within the United States. I've done a little bit of comparative work, but that's still progressive reformist activism within the context of other countries' electoral systems and, and uh, political systems. What I would say is the the comparisons are often made to propaganda efforts by the United States, you know, in the Cold War and after the Cold War. We have a checkered history. We have a we have a bad history there, right? Like the, the CIA has done a bunch of things that you and I should not be proud of. But that's also in in both an older information system or an older media system. And I think it's noteworthy that U.S. elections are fundamentally different than elections in other democratic systems because of the size and scale of the campaigns. Um, this is a, a tangent, but let me follow it. Back in May 2016, I got to take a trip to Australia to, to give a couple talks related to my book, Analytic Activism. And I was visiting Australia just after they had announced the upcoming election. I visited a group called GetUp, which is the sister, Australian sister organization to Move On. And they had a, a countdown clock on the wall. They were you know, mobilizing everything they had for what they were talking about as a long, ruling 30-day campaign. And at the time, I was like, oh, my God, this is adorable. 30 days for an election. U.S. election. I mean, our, the U.S. election has already been going on, the 2020 election, since, what, mid-2019? We've already spent over half a million dollars, or half a billion dollars, possibly actually, I haven't checked recently, but like it may actually be close to a billion dollars spent, will be multiple billions of dollars spent before the end of this election, and it'll go on for 18 or more months. And in that multi-billion dollar election, the effect, the impact of any individual advertisement, information or disinformation, is gonna be much smaller because there's so much communication in the system. In any other democratic system, you have far less communication going on, which means the marginal impact of any given message is going to be larger. Um, Instead of being a drop in an ocean, it's going to be a drop in a pond. So I think that changes the context of everything where like, yeah, there's a lot of U.S. foreign propaganda from back in the day, things that we did that we as citizens should be proud of, or that that were done in our name that we shouldn't be proud of. But the effects that that stuff had was different – both for good and for bad, because our electoral system is so weird. It goes on for so long and so much money is spent.
0: So on the concepts of digital persuasion and communication, looking at here at home again, how do we understand the rise of Trump and then also the rise of the alt-right from this perspective?
1: So let me treat the rise of Trump, as a, I think it's a two-stage question. Because we have to ask first, how the hell did Donald Trump win the Republican primary? And then how did he win the general election? And the first question is actually, that the first step is tougher than the second one. If, if we could go back in time to summer 2015, I was confidently offering to bet anyone money that Donald Trump wouldn't win a single primary. And it was, you know, half-joking that if Donald Trump could win a single primary, that would be for the field of American electoral research, the equivalent of the Berlin Wall calling for U.S. Sovietologists. Like everything we knew said, look, this guy is getting a bunch of attention now, but he won't go anywhere. And so it was deeply shocking, both for me and I think in general for political scientists, that Donald Trump managed to win that primary. It was less objectively shocking that Donald Trump was able to win the general election because the thing that we know about general, the, the general election in U.S. politics in the 21st century is we're so polarized that whoever the Republican nominee was was going to get all the Republican votes, which was going to be close to half, and then he just needed a, like a, a few things to, to go right for him to cobble together an electoral majority. Not even a popular vote majority, but to, to like you know s- skate through and get that electoral vote majority, which he did so that was I think less theoretically surprising that a Republican, any Republican, even that Republican could win the general. But how the hell does he win the primary and there I think again, a lot of the answer is in the hybrid media system. the thing that campaign workers for the other candidates complained loudly about for years, and actually would probably still complain about now, they're probably still not over it, is that usually the way coverage works in an election is a splashy new candidate enters, they get some media coverage, particularly if they're then leading the polls, they might get a few weeks of media coverage, real examination of both their, their pluses and their minuses, and then the attention shifts to other candidates. The attention in the Republican primary never shifted off of Donald Trump. All of the other candidates running campaigns were banking on the moment when the media t- paid attention to them, and it just didn't. Donald Trump actually didn't spend a lot of money on advertisements in the primary, but he got somewhere between 2 and $3 billion worth of free media attention. And the data and analytics is part of the answer to why that happened. And part of it is he's got those reality show antics. But... We also, by 2016, uh, 2015, 2016, are living in a hybrid media system in which media outlets, both online and uh, newspaper and television, since they have online elements too, are precisely monitoring what stories are getting the most traction. They're using companies like Chartbeat in order to measure like, which stories, which headlines are getting shared the most, are getting clicked on the most, are bringing in the most attention. And that has an agenda-setting effect within the editorial room. Editorial boards in 2016 are able to see that even if it's heat clicks, the thing that people want to click on is Donald Trump stories, Um, and people don't particularly want to click on Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush stories. And so then the media, seeing that responsiveness from their audience keeps on giving the audience what it wants, which is Donald Trump stories, which means that the other candidates – essentially can't break through. The other thing that was happening there that, that is sort of is an aside, but I, I think also if, if we could rerun history and just remove Ted Cruz from the primary, I think that that Republican primary might have turned out differently because the other thing that all of, everybody was waiting to see happen was all of the candidates, other candidates dropping out and the party consolidating around a single anti-Trump candidate in the same way that Joe Biden pretty quickly, like within the space of four days, became the anti-Bernie Sanders candidate. All the other candidates dropped out and endorsed him. And then people who weren't comfortable with Sanders all went to Biden. And within the space between South Carolina and Super Tuesday, Biden basically went from uh, a candidate with no traction to the nominee. So why did that not happen for Republicans? Part of the answer is that Ted Cruz was constantly in second place. He was the natural person to consolidate around as the anti-Trump candidate, but <laughs> it turns out that no Republican, pretty much no Republican was able to stand Ted Cruz. So you had all of these other candidates saying, well, we need to consolidate around somebody, but it's not going to be Cruz, so maybe it'll be me. I'm going to wait it out, and they all just waited it out for, for forever until it was far too long. So it, like that sort of perfect storm is what gives us Trump in the in the primary, and then in the general... Again, there's no, there's no magic wand. I mean, the guy didn't run a good campaign by any of the measures of how, you, how we usually measure a good campaign. But he is a master media manipulator and had help from foreign actors and others in manipulating the media. And that plus the Comey letter ends up being just enough for him to get an electoral vote majority and therefore gain all the power in our system.
0: Would you say that this rise of Trump – challenge the political science literature on digital communications or would you also say that it proved it
1: it's mostly a challenge I, I wrote a piece in 2017 called digital politics after trump just taking a look at a few of the keystone texts within my field and kind of it was i, I called it a work of academic fam sections, asking the question if they were writing a second edition post trump what would change what would they say Couple of those books who now had a second edition and I've mostly called it right the authors wrote me and said like yep what's that what I'm doing but I think the main thing is um I've written a few, a few other contexts about we tend to have an, a, an embedded assumption that democratic participation so that participation is a good thing that's why I've, I've, I've elsewhere called the assumption of an earnest internet the idea there being like the problem with American democracy is that not enough people are getting involved and what we want, you know, like the the old line about the answer to bad speech being good speech. Like we, we have long believed as theorists that if you would just get more people engaged, then you would have better democratic results. And that old assumption I think works at least better for the older media environment in which participation is fundamentally costly and therefore like if somebody's going to show up to like a, like a, a town hall hearing like that that takes a bunch of time, time and energy so whatever they're going to say there they probably mean it they're probably earnestly there and whether they're like like right or wrong whether like their opinions are good or bad they are at least genuinely held and i think what we've increasingly seen particularly during in the trump era is a challenge of that earnest internet assumption, that assumption that participation, good or bad, is at least well-intentioned, is done from like, fundamentally earnest premises. One of the things that we saw in Gamergate and we've seen ever since, you know, the, the reason why Gamergate was able, the, like, the Gamergate crowd was able to cost Gawker so much money wasn't because they were yelling advertisers saying, like, hey, we're really mad that they did a story about us harassing female gaming journalists. What they did instead was like, find a bunch of lies that they could tell about who they were and why they were and what it offended them, and then send that those messages out in bulk to get a result. And that's, that, that sort of thing we've seen more and more since then. This case a few years ago where, um, creating the, I think it's James Gunn is the name of the, the director. He uh, used to do trauma films, and he did both the Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And James Gunn spoke up on social media about his disagreement and his problems with Donald Trump. And that the alt-right saw that, and instead of challenging him and saying, you know, why, you know, how dare you dislike Trump and use your voice online, instead they went hunting for old jokes that he had told in the 1990s when he was with trauma films, um, like gross out humor that had not aged well, and then shared that, you know, got that still viral and claimed to be deeply offended by these things that he had said decades ago. And, you know, at that out of context, they, they then went to Disney and said, look, we're so offended by these tweets of his that we found from decades ago that you have to fire him, and Disney did fire him from Guardians of the Galaxy 3. He's now back, and I hope we'll put together a good movie. But the the lesson there was all of that outrage was was manufactured and fundamentally not earnest. It was strategic. They had realized that tactically they could – like go and search for something from 20 or 30 years ago and use it out of context in order to get a political result that they wanted. And we're seeing that kind of thing happening more and more where like, now when these like alt-right mobs materialize and go after somebody, they, they may earnestly not like that person because that person is trying to hold up a political system that the alt-right doesn't like. But the way they're going after them is, like, in deeply bad faith trying to find weaknesses in the system, you know, corporations that are just scared of all the outrage and say, okay, okay, we'll fire whoever you want us to fire. And the challenge there is because the corporations are assuming while you're contacting me in earnest, if you say you're offended by, like, a joke that was told 25 years ago, then, of course, you must really mean that. So that, that earnestness assumption is a thing that, like, is, I think, deeply embedded in how we think about civic behavior both offline and online and coming to grips with that like being able to say like yeah you know you guys say that you're being upset about this but like this type of participation is not earnest and not good that's the thing that political theorists aren't and political scientists I think aren't used to saying and aren't really comfortable saying and so it's left us in the lurch is a thing that we've been, had, had to work to sort of get our heads around
0: So one of my final questions would be, and this is a big one, so I know it's big and broad, but what would you say is the future of democratic norms and digital political influence in the online environment? What do you think we will see more of and potentially new things as we ramp up, especially to the 2020
1: elections? Let me actually look past the case. Look, 2020 elections are going to be bad we don't know what type of bad and coronavirus is now going to affect it. And then we just don't know how, but like clearly it's now going to be an election that is defined in the shadow of the coronavirus and both what does that do to our hospitals? What does that do to our economy? You know, what does that do to social behavior? But like it's already pretty clear that like the shock of coronavirus is going to define the election in ways that like we couldn't have predicted two months ago. But let's assume that we're going to return to relatively normal times a couple years from now. we got some real problems with democratic norms. So again, I I write about this in that Social Science Research Council piece that I I mentioned. One of the fundamental norms of American democracy is what I call the the myth of the attentive public. The myth is that there is a public who is paying attention to the political behavior of elected officials or political elites. And they're paying enough attention that political elites should be mindful they should be careful they should be constrained in their activities because if you get caught you know for instance lying bad things will happen as a result and i call that a myth specifically for for because it does a couple of things one is that that attentive public has never existed in the history of american boxing ever 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 it is not the case that like now we have a lazy public, and before we had, like, some great attentive public. We've never had one. If you go back to the era of the founders when most people voted, most people, well, first of all, not only was it land white males who were voting, but also they were voting because they turned out in person to vote and were then handed rum punch. Like, the elected officials were like, come, there will be a big party, you're going to cast a ballot, uh, and then I'm going to get you drunk. Uh, <laughs> then we had, like, throughout the 19th century, pretty high voter participation but they weren't secret ballots which meant like you were going and turning out and voting democrat or voting republican because that's what you were supposed to do and the party apparatus would know if you didn't and like mm-hmm. you and yours could get you know, mildly punished for it um there's never been a time in american democracy where the public has lived up to our ideals of the public but 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 myths are not true or false they are living or dead And the power of the living myth of the attentive public, this is similar to what I was saying earlier about the NRA, so long as you have political elites who believe that there is an attentive public, that will affect elite behavior. So, and this is something which, this is a trend that predates Donald Trump, by the way. This goes back at least to Newt Gingrich, uh, who's operating just after the the USSR falls. So we had a a long, like a a multi-decade stretch in which American democracy was defined by the Cold War. Democracy was in opposition to the Soviet Union and communism. And that defined our identity and also created some boundaries where, like, the two parties would battle it out with each other. But then there was some sense of, like, at some point you need to also govern. Because if not, like, the, there is this long shadow of communism and we need to kind of keep our shit together. Otherwise, like, we are going to look bad on the international stage compared to them. And not long, like it's it's only a couple of years after the fall of the USSR, that you have Newt Gingrich's Republican Revolution of 1994, and this constant testing of norms, this constant sense of like, what are the things that are governance norms, or are our norms and behaviors of political elites? But like the assumption is like, if you don't do this, then bad things will happen. And like, let's kind of test that assumption, you know, and like the the attempt to impeach Bill Clinton, like, that's that's a test of that assumption. It's like, what behaviors can we Republicans get away with without being held to account? And that accelerates throughout the late 1990s, into the early 2000s, into the 20-teens, you know, where what you constantly see with Fox News or with anybody else is this testing of, do we really have an attentive public, or will people not care? Like, one of the moments, like, it now feels forever ago, but... You all remember when Ted Cruz shut down the government because he wanted to see a defend, defunding of Obamacare. There's no way that Obamacare was going to get defunded, but he was like, "Ah, tactically, like I can just filibuster and convince that like Repu- the Republican-led House not to pass, not not to pass the budget, and that'll shut down the government." And like that was deeply opposed. Like people talked about that as a terrible thing it pulled terribly and then by the next election it didn't matter they still won and what that proved was fundamentally like yeah you can get away with this short-term behavior that gets a lot of tension and raises a lot of money even though it's unpopular because there isn't an attempt to at public the public doesn't really end up caring and the trump era has been shock full of that of testing of norms and finding out that actually, you can grazenly outright lie and nothing bad will happen. And that myth is, like, that That myth is connected to a bunch of load-bearing norms for how do you have a democracy. And we just had, we're, we're recording the day after news came out that a couple of senators, particularly Burr from North Carolina or South Carolina, but he got confidential briefings on how bad coronavirus was going to be, sold a bunch of his stock, told rich donors that they should sell stock, and also tweeted that, and, and released a uh, public statement saying, hey, it's not going to be so bad. It, you know, It's like the media just going after Trump. Don't worry about it. That endangers the public. Now, it's possible that he's going to resign. Tucker Carlson has even called for him to resign, so maybe he will. But if he doesn't resign, runs for re-election, he will probably get re-elected. He would probably still be the Democrat because his state is pretty solidly Republican. I think if Kelly Loeffler is a Republican in Georgia, She. Did basically the same thing, and she is married to the head of the New York Stock Exchange. That is illegal, and she should go to jail. But if the Justice Department decides not to prosecute her because it's partisan, and she runs for re-election, she probably just wins. And then that that then signals that you can get away with actually breaking the law and actually endangering the public, like people's lives, and still get re-elected and still face effectively no consequences. So – I think those those democratic myths myths and the norms that they hold up are deeply endangered. The internet doesn't cause it, but the internet does accelerate it. Because what we're now seeing is this constant testing and feedback that shows, you know, like sure, this is polling poorly for the entire national public, but we're a deeply polarized society, and Republicans seem to love it, so we can keep on doing it. And norms only continue to hold weight; they, conti- they only continue to have value. Until they are tested, and nothing bad happens as a result, the Trump era has been full of all of this testing of democratic norms, and the sky doesn 't fall even when they put kids in cages. So when that happens, that then destroys those myths of a democratic of the attentive public and we need a, a political elite who like believes the public is attentive enough that it, they like police their own worst instincts and worst behaviors, otherwise functionally. Like Whether we have elections or not, we're not a democracy. So assuming we return to normal times post-coronavirus, not only do we need to get post-Trump, but we also need to find some way to repair those democratic norms, and that's going to be hard to do. That's going to be a lot of work.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Dave. And before I let you go, we do have a question from a listener that's more on a personal matter, but they wanted to know how your dog, Sherlock, is doing and if Sherlock still goes to classes with you.
1: Uh, So that is a question from a former grad student of mine. Sherlock is doing great. He's sleeping on the couch right now. He's the only member of my family who likes this coronavirus shut-in because he's getting all the pets. I no longer bring my dog to campus because what I found over the years is that while I love bringing him to school and my students love me bringing him to school, he hates coming to my school because there are no couches for him to sleep. There's like no cushy spots on my campus, and his interests are more important to me than any pretty much than any of my students or my own. So I don't bring him to campus anymore because he doesn't like it.
0: That is completely understandable, being a dog owner myself, so I get it. Our pets are our family, and we love them to pieces. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast and providing us with your expertise. This has been a really interesting talk, and I'm sure our listeners will find it as well. And for our listeners, I just want to say on behalf of the Loopcast, we wish you safety and lots of health and happiness, and hopefully things will get back to some sort of normal in the coming weeks with the coronavirus. But if you're listening to us, socially distancing, quarantined, whatever, we wish you all the best. So thank you.